So, Gracie, can you present your case? This patient is a 59-year-old male that I saw in year 2000. He's a father of my chemo nurse. He was being followed by his internist for hypertension and diabetes, and he was found to have an elevated serum protein levels. On workup, he was found to have IgG kappa on the immunofixation in the serum. There was no hypercalcemia, no anemia, no renal insufficiency. Bone marrow showed about 50% plasma cells. No skeletal lesions was found. I started him on thalidomide and dexamethasone. About six to nine months into the treatment, he went into complete remission. There was no evidence of marrow involvement. The immunofixation showed no monoclonal spike. He was sent for a bone marrow transplant, which he underwent successfully. And then he was continued on thalidomide maintenance. He did well, although last two years I had noticed that he was slowly developing a protein spike. In the meantime, he also developed atrial fibrillation, and he was placed on Coumadin by his internist. In 2008, January, his IgG started to go back up. And at that time, I also noticed that he became anemic, actually pancytopenic, gradually. A bone marrow done showed that his multiple myeloma was back. And his IgG went up to over 3,500 at that point. So, Bob, what do you think it's about what you've heard? What do you think about what you've heard so far, and what would you be thinking about at this point? Well, one point to make about the maintenance therapy is that in the one study that supports using maintenance post-transplant, which is the IFM trial that randomized people to observation or bisphosphonates or bisphosphonates plus thalidomide, in a retrospective analysis, it looked like the people who benefited from thalidomide maintenance were the ones that were not in either a CR or VGPR after the transplant. And so I think one could question about whether if this patient was in a CR, whether maintenance with thalidomide was going to be something that was of benefit. What about maintenance with lenalidomide? There is a study ongoing. It's an intergroup trial looking at Revlimid versus placebo for maintenance post-transplant, and we don't have that data yet. One would suspect that since Revlimid is better tolerated, people can generally stay on it longer, that probably the efficacy will be greater. But one of the other things that the thalidomide study showed is that if you had a deletion of 13, you didn't benefit either. So again, small subgroups only seem to benefit. And although there was initial data suggesting that Revlimid worked well in a deletion 13 setting, more recent upfront data from the Mayo where they used Rev low-dose DEX showed that as in terms of progression-free survival, there was still a large difference in PFS between people who got Rev low-dose DEX upfront and had good cytogenetics versus those who had poor cytogenetics, including deletion 13, on the routine carrier type. So it may be that Rev which we first thought didn't work in high-risk cytogenetics, then we thought that maybe it did. Now we're thinking that maybe it doesn't again, although, again, we don't know the long-term follow-up on that yet. So what would you be thinking about for this patient? Well, pancytopenia, it's certainly 
potential for relapsed myeloma being part of it needs to be considered. I suppose that since this patient got a transplant, you have to worry about myelodysplastic syndrome or something else, although the timeline is a little bit too short for that typically. What would you think about treating the patient uh, with? The nice thing about this patient is that since he got thalidomide and dexamethasone, there are many options for therapy in the relapsed setting here. You could do Revlimid with dexamethasone, although the efficacy of Revlimid is a little bit decreased if you've had prior thalidomide. The relapsed studies showed that Rev high dose dex was about a 60% response rate if you were thalidomide naive. And that went down to about a 50% response rate if you were thalidomide exposed. And your time to progression went down from about a year to more like eight to nine months. And for whatever reason, there seemed to be a higher risk of deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism in those people. But certainly Revdex is an option. I tend to try to switch the base of my therapy from one line to another. So if you've had an imid-based therapy before, my option would be likely to use a Velcade-based combination here, especially if this patient had some poor-risk cytogenetics. I didn't hear about the cytogenetics. The cytogenetics was normal both times. Okay. What about bertezomib, liposome, and doxorubicin, as you studied? That would certainly be a good option here as well. I think what we know, based on the cytogenetics now, there were two subgroups in the retrospective analysis of that trial that didn't benefit from the combination. If you had a deletion of 13, Velcade was as good as Velcade-Doxel. And if you had a low beta-2, Velcade was just as good as Velcade-Doxel. So if this patient fit any of the other criteria, then the combination would probably be better in terms of response rate, small benefit, but a much bigger benefit in time to progression. You want to follow up with what happened to the yeah, patient? There were two issues that I had to deal with here. One was the pancytopenia, and the other one was patient being a diabetic. So I thought about it and went with the fact that he had been on thalidomide. So I decided to start him on Velcade and dexamethasone. Mm-hmm. His IgG came down. He remained pancytopenic, needed a couple of admissions to the hospital because of weakness. He did develop neuropathy, fairly significant. So at this point, I have held his treatment. I'm just making a decision as to what to do. I may have to put him back on Revlimid. That's what I'm thinking at this point. And what did his bone marrow look like? The second time, the bone marrow was not as cellular. It was somewhat hypocellular, but he had about 30% plasma cells this time. Okay. You mentioned the issue of doxel and bortezomib. Now, this patient had a history of atrial fibrillation. How much of a problem is that? Well, that was not an exclusion in the studies that were done, as long as the ejection fraction was at least 45%. And the comparison from that phase three study showed no significant increase in cardiac adverse events or congestive heart failure in particular in the Velcade-Doxel arm compared with Velcade alone. And actually, not that it's fair to compare different phase three studies, but the Velcade-Doxel group had a lower rate of CHF and other complications than the dexamethasone alone group on the 
Apex Velcade versus Dex study. So I think certainly anthracyclines, I think, over the years have had rightly deserved reputation for, in some patients, especially at high cumulative doses, potentially causing cardiac complications. But the liposomal version is much more cardiac-friendly, and we've got sufficient data to say that I think it probably does not have any increase in cardiac toxicity. The one exception would be in people who start off with a low ejection fraction to begin with. If you're in the 20s or 30s, those people were excluded from the studies. And so I would be also hesitant to put someone like that on because we just don't have that data available. Frank, does a cytogenetic profile help you in choosing a therapy? Well, at some point, hopefully, we'll be in a situation where we will be making decisions based on that. I think if you've got poor risk features, Velcade should be part of the equation, although in this VISTA study of VMP versus MP, the hazard ratio for benefit from VMP was actually lower in the good risk cytogenetic group, meaning that they benefited even more from Velcade MP than did the patients with poor risk cytogenetics. But there are many people who advocate that if you, and this is, for example, the Mayo M-SMART criteria, where they recommend that if you have good risk cytogenetics, that maybe REV with low-dose DEX is a sufficient induction regimen, whereas if you have poor risk cytogenetics, you should use a Velcade based combination such as VRD. Again, the downside is that we don't have long-term follow-up to validate that approach. And I think if you're taking R little d and getting a 70-ish percent response rate, which is the number up front, or you could do RVD and get basically a 100% response rate, it's tough to argue with that. So I think for a while, it looked like maybe there was a way that we could triage people based on cytogenetics. And at least from my perspective right now, based on the data that we have, I still like VRD for all of those groups. And what I'm hoping is that we can take VRD as a scaffold and depending on the cytogenetics of the patient, then add other molecularly targeted drugs. For example, 414 translocation, if you overexpress FGFR3, you should, in theory, be able to add an FGFR3 tyrosine kinase inhibitor onto VRD in those patients. The 17P people that have deletion of P53, maybe you can add an HDM2 inhibitor in those people which would increase P53 levels if the other allele that is not deleted still expresses some P53. Another example, the folks that have 1114 translocations that are theoretically good risk, but nonetheless, they still are not cured, although you can't target cyclin D1 directly with a chemotherapeutic. We now have very targeted cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitors, which will target the kinases that act in concert with cyclin D1. So that's my thought about where the field should go. I'm not sure anybody will actually listen to me, <laughs> but, but it sounds good to talk about it, and at least it has some rational basis behind it. 